Recovery Elevator, episode 246. If this is the beginning of something, it's the ending of something else. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you, as always, for joining us. On today's podcast, we've got a rock star named Wendell. He's 42 years old. He's from Toronto, Canada. He took his last drink on June 13th, 2019. He talks about in his interview how he justified and normalized his drinking. I think we can all relate to that one. Also in his interview, he talks about how he finally started listening to the nagging health issues, mood swings, and depressive states that he was experiencing. It's a great interview. You guys are going to love it. And listeners, I rarely mention this, but if you find value in the podcast and would like to make a donation, you can go to recoveryelevator.com and at the very bottom, you can find a way to do so. Also, if you shop on Amazon, you can help support the Recovery Elevator podcast by doing so through this link. You just go to recoveryelevator.com forward slash Amazon, and that'll direct you to the affiliate link for Amazon and Recovery Elevator. And before we get any further, let's hear from Cafe RE. The three most important lessons I've learned while quitting drinking are we can't do this alone, we need accountability, and a supportive community is key. In the private unsearchable Facebook groups Cafe RE, you're going to get all three and much more. What does private mean? Well, these groups are unsearchable on Facebook. Who's in the group and what is said can only be seen by members. You get 24-7 access to a group full of others whose priority it is to ditch the booze. These groups are capped at under 350 members to ensure a quality connection. In Cafe RE, you'll find that quitting drinking doesn't have to suck. In fact, it can be a lot of fun. For $19 a month, you too can join the conversation, be paired with an accountability partner, attend educational online webinars, online meetups, attend in-person meetups, participate in book club, movie club, and much more. Oh yeah, you'll also get discounts to retreats and sober travel trips. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. I hope to see you there. Okay, a quick poem before we get started. In retrospect, all those moments I thought were bad caused the greatest growth I ever had. Huh, I thought were bad. Sounds like an incorrect label to me. After the interview with Wendell, I'll cover these incorrect labels more in depth. Okay, let's get started. I'm excited for this podcast episode. I know a lot of listeners have been asking for it, and I'm excited to throw this one out there. So in this episode, I'm going to discuss the five responses you're going to get when you tell people you no longer drink, aka burn the ships. Also in this podcast episode, I'm going to discuss the oh shit I posted on social media accidentally that I no longer want to drink alcohol and the responses and what you do there. And third, I'm going to discuss some personal anecdotes to share with you guys what will happen in professional settings as well in personal settings when you come out about not drinking. Okay, let's roll right into this. So here are the five responses that you're going to get. Um, and since we are a culture that loves figures, data, graphs, etc., 
I'm going to put percentages next to these five responses. All right, so let's role play for a second here. Let's imagine you're walking up to a party, ring the doorbell, a ding a dong, a ding a dong. Someone opens the door and says, Hey, Michelle, welcome to the fiesta. Can I get you a drink? And then Michelle responds with, Ah, you know what? I'm good, or I don't drink, or I'm taking a break. So here's the response you're going to get 70% of the time. Again, these percentages are just estimates. Please don't email me and say, Hey, Paul, you're three percentage points off in my experience, because that's all it is, my experience. Okay, so here's what's happening 70% of the time, people are going to be supportive. They are going to say, wow, that's so cool because I want you to be the best version of you. Now, this response is completely underwhelming. We build this response up in our head over and over and over. We play out every single scenario circumstance. And guess what? The majority of them, in fact, all of them don't happen. Completely underwhelming. 70% of the time, it's going to be supportive. That's great. You want a water? You want a Coke? We've got a LaCroix, right? That's what you're going to get. Don't even try to explain to this person what's going on. I heard a great quote one time that said, 1,000 explanations won't suffice to someone who hasn't quite struggled with addiction or grappled with alcohol. And for somebody who has, no explanation is needed. So all you have to say is, no thanks, I'm good, I'll take a water, or what else do you have? You don't need to get into the nitty gritty of it. All right, so the second response you're going to get, walk up to the door, a ding a dong, a ding a dong, open up. Hey, Michelle, what's up? Can I get you a drink? You're going to say, nope, I'm good. Here's the response you're going to get 20% of the time. Whoa, Michelle, you know what? Yeah, my, my, my coworker or my cousin or my uncle or my grandpa or my dad or my brother, I've also made the decision to no longer drink alcohol or coupled with that, they're going to open up to you with somebody that they know who are struggling with alcohol. What's going to happen with this response as well as all of them, your relationship with this person is going to deepen. You're going to get past the surface level stuff real quick, and you're going to deepen this relationship that's going to become more altruistic. It's going to benefit both parties. And you're going to see this about 20% of the time, not saying that only 20% of the people know someone who has struggled with addiction. That is a hundred percent of the time, but about 20% of the time they're going to open up about it. But again, coupled with this 70%, man, these percentages are difficult because they all overlap. They're also going to be supportive and it's also going to be an underwhelming response. But when you go deeper and talk more about their cousin, their coworker, their uncle, the person that they know in their life who are struggling with addiction, um, it's going to be a great conversation and they might even connect you with that person. If you want a real life example of what this can look like, go back and listen to episode 241 titled Life Synergies. Okay, let's continue role playing. And this is the third response you're going to get about 5% of the time. So you roll up to the party, ring the doorbell. Hey, Michelle, welcome to the fiesta. What can I get you to drink? You're going to say, I'm good. I don't drink. I'm on a break. Got a marathon to train for, whatever you want to say. And here's what's going to happen about 5% of the time. You're going to get an inquisitive response. They're going to start drilling you or what it seems like. They're going to start blasting you with questions such as, well, well, well how come? Did, did anything happen? Um, like, did somebody tell you you drink too much? How, how much did you used to drink? What was, was it hard? Uh, I mean, like, seriously, come on, let me, let me just get you a drink. So when this happens, and the first couple of times it happened to me, I, it was scary. I'll, I'll admit, I almost got defensive with it. 
But keep in mind, this is what's happening. They are being inquisitive for themselves. They are questioning their own drinking habits. So stay firm, stay present, and simply ask their questions. Don't incorrectly label what's happening. And you never know, this person might be exploring a life without alcohol as well. And you might be that person that they needed to meet at that time in their life. Okay, the fourth response that you're going to get 4% of the time, Michelle's walking up to the door, rings the doorbell. Hey, Michelle, can I get you a drink? You say, no, thank you. I'm good. Whatever. And this is for people that are acquaintances or friends. They're going to say, great, Michelle. Fantastic. But what's going to happen next? On the surface, they are supportive of your decision, which they are. It's not even an on the surface thing. Deep down, they are supportive. But some of these people most likely... Those are two conditional statements. I'm saying this will most likely depart from your life within time. They are still supportive, but these are people like your drinking friends, the people that you only had the drinking in common. The connection was the alcohol. So like I said, they're still supportive. They are still behind your decision to be the best version of you, but they will no longer be part of your life. Let this happen and it can happen gradually. It can happen instantly, but please don't fight it. This is a good thing. Now, the fifth response, this one's rare. This happens about 1% of the time, and actually, I've yet to see it face-to-face. So here we go. You walk up to the party, ring the doorbell, ding-a-dong, open the door. Hey, Michelle, welcome to the party. Can I get you a drink? You're going to say, nope, I don't drink. And they're going to say, no, that's not okay with me. I don't support that decision or some version of that. They're not going to be that verbose or eloquent with it, shall we say. But that's your response you're going to get. And I've put this at 1% because it's extremely rare. And as I've mentioned, I haven't seen it face-to-face yet. Who knows? Maybe behind my back, people are saying, look, that Paul Churchill guy doesn't drink poison anymore, so we can't hang out with him. He's a terrible, terrible person. And even that has probably never happened. So with this 1% response rate, keep in mind, it has absolutely nothing to do with you. Never has and never will. It has everything to do with the person who's giving you that response. All right, so those are the five responses you're going to get, and I didn't check my math, and good God, I hope that adds up to 100%. So one common thing with all five responses, especially the first four, is they're completely similar to Y2K, a total letdown. They don't care, and not only do they don't care, they want you to be the best version of you. They're all supportive. So for 34 years, I thought at least Jupiter and Mars orbited around me, Paul Churchill. So yeah, it was a hit to the ego, finding out that I'm not the center of the universe, and neither are you. People just don't care. People aren't at parties eyeing me and chatting about me. Oh, is Paul drinking or not? No one cares if I drink or if you drink or if you, Susie, Mindy, Mike, Tim, or Javier are drinking or not. So married with the first four responses, you'll occasionally get the, you know what? I've sometimes wondered if alcohol is holding me back in life as well. How cool is that? You've opened the dialogue for somebody else who's also exploring a life without alcohol. And this is what usually happens. Check this out. In episode 204, I interview one of my best friends named Dusty. He quit drinking, and then within the following 18 months, about half of his family followed suit. How awesome is that? So 99% of responses are supportive. 
1% are not. So keep in mind with this 1%, this has nothing to do with you. And when emotion is tied in with it, especially with alcohol and addiction, things get murky. But let's switch that 1% unlikely response from alcohol to weight loss. Say you were to go to a friend or a spouse or a partner and say, hey, you know what? I'm thinking of losing 20 pounds and just feeling better and being the best version of myself. If that spouse, partner, friend, etc., were to say, no, that's terrible. If you do that, I'm not ever going to hang out with you again. You don't need to be Dr. Phil to recognize that person's an asshole and they need to leave your life. So for some reason with alcohol, cue the stigma, etc., it just gets more murky, but it doesn't have to be more complicated than that. All right. In this next segment, I want to talk about how people can sometimes accidentally post on their personal Facebook newsfeed. How does this happen? Well, um, if you sign up for Cafe RE, I assure you those groups are private, unsearchable. Only the people in the groups can see who A is in the group and B what is posted. That is a fact. <laughs> However, sometimes if you're not privy to how Facebook works on the mobile app or the desktop settings, sometimes you're going to post on your public wall thinking you're in the group setting, right? So this sometimes does happen. It's happened to myself and, <laughs> and I see the post. It's like, oh shit, here's what I did. I accidentally posted on my public wall thinking it was here. And this is what happens. Most people recognize this within a minute or two. They have a panic attack, exhibit stroke symptoms, and remove the post. They then sit in a state of horror for the next, I don't know, one to 30 hours. And they just, they're just wondering like, oh my God, who saw it? Who saw it? Who saw it? Who didn't see it? Oh, do I have to quit my job? Do I have to move out of the country? Probably have to sell my car, my dog, my house, get uh, everything needs to change, right? So I want to let you know I understand this trepidation. There was a time in my life where I uploaded an MP3 file to a place called iTunes in podcast format. We'll cover that more in a second. Okay, so what happens when we don't recognize or we don't realize that we posted on our personal feed um, for a couple hours or, or like half a day? Then we find ourselves in a pickle. We go, oh, shit, 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 shit. We go check it. And people have started to comment. Uh, the consensus is starting to roll in. And you read the comments and you're like, oh, wait, wait, wait a second. These are, this is like the Grinch, right? Where he puts his hand up to, a, to his ear and hears the sounds of, of Christmas down in Whoville. You say, wait, 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 wait a second. People are supportive. They, they, they are congratulating me on my decision to ditch poison and no longer drink alcohol. I've, oh, no, I've got personal messages of people saying, I've got people in my family who also struggle with this. Good job, you. And then you're in a pickle of, do I delete this post or not? And then sometimes I hear stories of they'll post at night. They'll go to bed, and this thing's been up there for like 12 to 14 hours, and the ships are fully burned. There's no coming back from that one. And here's the thing. I've yet to hear one bad response, and I've seen several screenshots of the responses that people get. Uh, and people are tough behind keyboards. People say things that they normally wouldn't say behind keyboards. But what happens here is everybody rallies the troops. They come to your side and they say, hey, how can we help? Nice job. You do you, girl, bro, whatever. Um, it's like the best thing that can happen to people when they post on the personal feed. They don't realize what's happening and they go to bed and wake up and they just accidentally created their whole in-person recovery community. It's so awesome. So maybe don't accidentally do it. Think about really doing it when you hit a milestone. And you know what? It doesn't even matter if you hit a milestone. Just do it. My one-year post away from alcohol was by far 
my most popular <laughs> post on Facebook, over like 600 likes, 150 comments, 30 or 40 personal messages, etc. And this was before Recovery Elevator um, it had even really started. The podcast has started, but that's it didn't really have much traction at that point. Now, some of you might be saying, well, Paul, this is great, but it's your job. Your career is Recovery Elevator, and it's going to be hard to do that if you don't talk about it. So at this moment, that statement is true, but that wasn't always the case. There was a time when I owned other businesses. I had other jobs. Uh, and here's some personal anecdotes I want to share with you where I was like, oh, shit, things are going to go south, but it didn't happen. So I used to own an adult rec league sports business. We did flag football, dodgeball, kickball, floor hockey, trivia. Uh, I think that's about it. It was a lot of fun. And I actually had beer sponsorships set up with a local distributor where if your team won or lost, you'd go afterward to a sponsor bar and get a free pitcher of beer. So one day I found myself in the distributor office setting up this deal only to find myself later that night at a restaurant on a wait list. They said, all right, your table is going to be ready. Uh, feel free to go to the bar, have a drink. I go to the bar with my friend and who do I see? The owner of the distributor and the same general manager that I spoke with just moments earlier that day. They said, hey, do you want a drink? And I'm like, oh, effing shit. Uh-oh, this whole deal is going to implode. And I just came up and I said, you know what? I don't drink. And what happened next? Dude, that's incredible. My son doesn't drink. We had like an hour-long conversation about recovery, about sobriety, about all that jazz. Okay, next business that I had. I used to own a wedding DJ business. Now, in the local newspaper, they did an article on Recovery Elevator. Before that came out, I was like, oh, shit, here we go. Let's burn some more ships. Yeah, and, and, and so in the wedding DJ business, the venues and the wedding planners hold the keys to basically your business. And what happened after this article came out, of course, there's trepidation. I'm thinking, well, this business is over. No wedding planner or venue wants a DJ in recovery who doesn't drink to come to their venue and DJ. That wasn't the case. I had a couple wedding planners and some venues reach out to me and say, hey, this is so cool. A couple of them didn't drink themselves. And the following summer after that article came out, we broke our previous record. I think we did 125 weddings the previous summer. I think we did 140 weddings um, the next summer. I used to own an arcade um, in a mall, and um, the mall general manager, wow, she's one of the best teachers of all time. <laughs> we had some difficult conversations, but again, I learned a lot from this woman. Um, I went in to sign the contract for, for to renew the contract with the mall, and she goes, hey, Paul, I saw your article in the paper about Recovery Elevator. And I'm sitting there going, oh, well, this business is done, and she goes, Paul, my daughter has been sober for two years and I don't need to tell you what happened next. We talked for the next 45 minutes about recovery, the podcast, all that jazz, that relationship was strengthened due to my decision to come out with it. I've also had vending machines in bars, um, buck hunters, things like that, pool tables. And when the bar owner would be like, Hey Paul, you want a drink after I go in and collect the money? I just say, you know, and I'm, I'm starting to wising up. I started, I'm starting to know what's going to happen here. I'll just be like, yeah, I don't drink. Guess what happens? They're like, dude, that is so cool. I've, uh, I've personally been exploring uh, what role alcohol plays in my life. So those are some quick personal anecdotes on the professional level. And I've also had about 10 to 15,000 emails come through. Another, uh, whatever, 1,000 Instagram and Facebook pings, etc. 
um, of support, of encouragement, of questions, of, hey, how do I do this, etc. And like I said, people are big and mighty behind a keyboard. They can say whatever they want, but this tells me that the stigma is completely false. And guys, Recovery Elevator was simply a tool to hold me accountable. Everything that's happened since, well, has just happened. I have met the most incredible people, the places I have been. And guys, I'm going to Thailand and Cambodia this January. Right now, we've got 25 people signed up for the trip on a trip of a lifetime to Southeast Asia with other rock stars. You guys, and I am not unique in any regard. As I mentioned, nothing orbits around me. Just the decision to be open about this has opened up so many doors. All right, so I do understand the trepidation, the anxiety that this can provoke when we think about telling people about our decision to not drink. But those are the responses you're going to get. But again, I do understand this. For the three months after uploading the podcast to iTunes, I had trouble sleeping. There were times, usually right before I went to bed, and I said, what the fuck? am I doing? Seriously, it was terrifying. I get it. So with this, I encourage you to explore this arena and I want you to go slow with this. I do think you can shock the system if you just go all out, burn the ships with like full on gasoline style. Just go slow with it. Tell people you're taking a break. I think the best way to do this is just say you don't drink. You don't need to make it any more complicated than that. So I hope you enjoyed this segment. Again, after we hear from Wendell, I'm going to talk about incorrect labels. But before we hear from Wendell, let's hear from today's sponsor, Honey. Giving holiday gifts is great. Overspending on all those gifts is definitely not. So why spend more than you have to? Finding the lowest price is easy if you have Honey. Honey is a free browser extension that automatically finds the best promo codes whenever you shop online. This means you always get the best deals without even trying on over 20,000 sites such as Amazon, eBay, J.Crew, Sephora, Expedia, Target, Best Buy, and more. I bought my nephew some Brio trains online for Christmas, and at checkout, Honey automatically kicks in and saved me $7.56. That's like 15 soda waters. I was pumped. Honey has found its over 10 million members over a billion dollars in savings. Honey supports over 20,000 stores online. Honey has over 100,000 plus five-star reviews on the Google Chrome store. If you're buying gifts this holiday season, then you need Honey. If you're not, you probably know someone who is, so do them a solid and tell them about Honey. Honey can make sure you're getting the best price for whatever you're buying. It's free to use and installs in just two clicks. Get Honey for free at joinhoney.com forward slash elevator. That's joinhoney.com forward slash elevator. Wendell, how are you? I'm great, man. How are you today? Wendell, I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for asking. Real quick, how was your power shake, almonds, and orange juice this morning? Uh, it was good. Trying to get the day off to a good start. You know, get some, get some good nutrients inside of you to get the day going. There we go. Just when you think you've seen it all doing the podcast, I say, hey, hey, Wendell, before I hit record, let's do a quick sound test. And usually how it goes, I say like, hey, the weather's this, you know, this is what it looks like in Bozeman. And they answer for five seconds. Wendell just goes, this morning I had a power shake with almonds and orange <laughs> juice. Uh, that was awesome. Thanks for the good laugh yeah. to start off the interview. Uh, I'm excited to hear your story. Uh, listeners, Wendell emailed me on July 17th. Um, about a really cool project he's doing. And we're going to talk about his journey into sobriety, and then we're going to get to his project later. But I'm excited to hear your story. Wendell, thanks for joining us. 
And so before we get any further, give listeners a little background about yourself, where you're from, what you do for a living, your age, do you have a family, and what do you like to do for fun? Sure. I live in uh, Toronto, Ontario, Canada. I'm 42 years old. I am a, a director and producer and cinematographer, uh, mostly of documentaries and uh, documentary series for television. I have a family, I have a wife, and I have an amazing son uh, who's six years old, and uh, and a dog named Cosmo who is our uh, rescue from Mexico. Oh, wow. What kind of dog is Cosmo? He is a poodle terrier mix. Yeah, I love it. Uh, what do you like to do for fun? Uh, for fun, really, it's mostly just about getting outdoors, uh, getting outdoors, enjoying nature. I love going to some of the big parks we have here in Toronto and just walking around and spending the afternoon with... Uh, with uh, Cosmo and my son and just really enjoying nature. There you go. Wendell, let's dive right into this. Give listeners background with your drinking. Talk to us about how much you were drinking before you quit drinking. Did you ever attempt to moderate? When was your first attempts to quit? And when did you start to realize that alcohol was a problem? Get us up to speed. I'm excited to hear it. Sure thing. I grew up in a small town in uh, northwestern Ontario, and there's a huge culture of, of drinking up there, as there are in a lot of small towns. And But I didn't really drink in high school. I didn't really start until university, around 1996 or so. And I mean, then it was just university, you know, going out, having fun with friends. Um, wasn't really something that was on my quote-unquote radar in terms of a problem. And then in my mid-30s, around 2006, I got really busy I uh, was shooting multiple series a year. Uh, it was pretty intense. We were starting a new family, um, new house. Stress was ramping up. But drinking was still very much a social thing. You know, dinner parties, barbecues, um, the occasional night out with a friend. Um, but it was it was clear that, you know, a lot of my social outgoings were with alcohol. I used to even host a pretty great scotch party uh, back in the day, which was usually attended to upwards of about 50 people, um, where we would have different varietals on the table and, you know, um, people enjoying themselves to the wee hours of the morning. Then I would say about, you know, in my mid, late 30s, uh, things kind of shifted where, you know, I was working on a lot of projects consecutively, stress, travel, um, new family, again, you know, just kind of everything building, 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 building. And drinking became very much part of a habitual thing. You know, it was it was both a reward and a stress reliever. You know, it was, uh, you know, if we landed a big project, celebrate with a drink. If we completed a production travel day, drinks at the hotel bar, finish a big shoot day, have drinks with the crew, travel home, drinks on the plane. So it was it kind of became part of the lifestyle and it became really habitual. And then I would say probably about three years ago, things shifted again. Quick Sorry, question, Wendell. When you, you mentioned there was the progression, it became habitual. Were you aware of this or was it like everybody in your surrounding, your work team, your colleagues are all doing the same? Or was there an internal voice saying, all right, this, this might be getting out of control or this might be something we need to keep in check? Well, I think, you know, uh, and I've listened to a number of different people express this, where you kind of start saying, oh, wow, this is kind of part of what this is. This is part of the lifestyle. But then there's always something else in your brain going, maybe you should be moderating this or maybe you should put some rules in place, check yourself before you wreck yourself kind of thing. And that kind of started to bubble about, you know, uh, four or five years ago, where 
some there were definite rules put into place to kind of uh, kind of keep myself in check every now and then. Sure. And that's a difficult point to reach in a journey. It's like a splinter happens. That's where the cognitive dissonance shows up where part of the brain says this is a reward. This is habitual. This is just part of the industry. Everybody's doing it. And then there's another voice that shows up and says, hey, we might need to cut back on this. We might need to start moderating. We need to keep an eye on this. And what was that like when there was almost like two forks in the road for you? Yeah, I mean, the the two forks were, were definitely there, you know, and uh, you can I can even point to certain instances where I, you know, chose this way as opposed to the other way. And the big the other thing that started to kind of manifest itself was with all of the sort of added responsibilities, um, because at this point I was now directing more, I was now producing more you know, with all the added responsibility that uh, was kind of being put on my shoulders, um, anxiety started to to kind of rear its ugly head. And at that point, things shifted again, where drinking became a coping mechanism for this anxiety, which, of course, as most people know, doesn't really work because you just end up inside of a crazy cycle where, you know, you get anxiety, you drink, you get depressed, depression leads to anxiety, which leads you to drink, which leads you to depression. So you just kind of end up in this sort of crazy hamster wheel of, of self-medication and, and coping. Wendell, we're going to try a virtual exercise right now. Listeners, if you found yourself inside that anxiety hamster wheel with alcohol, go ahead and raise your hand. Let's take a couple seconds. <laughs> yep, got my hand raised. Wendell's got his hand raised, and I think about uh, 15,000 other people got their hands raised right now, so we know exactly what we're talking about here. So it sounds like there's three voices going on right now, and they all get equally louder. One, the anxiety. We got to we got to mollify. We got to we got to we got to put a lid on this anxiety. And we do it with alcohol, and then it ramps up when the alcohol's gone. And then there's like, okay, this is normal. Um, everybody else is doing it. You're justifying it. It's normalized. And then there's the voice that says, "Hey, something is going off track here." I love it. You're doing great, Wendell. Get us up to speed. As I mentioned before, a lot of the drinking was habitual, but again, when it shifted to become more of a coping mechanism. Uh, instead of you know really dialing down on the root cause of of what was causing me to drink, I just really started to self-medicate to get through uh, the evenings, to get to bed, to get the six seven hours of sleep I needed before I had to jump back onto the next set. Uh, and you know it eventually it really started to catch up with me. And that kind of gives us an opportunity to cut to uh, 2018 uh, when I kind of realized that all of these rules of moderation that I had put into place really weren't working anymore. I had put rules in place to kind of moderate intake and I was pretty much breaking every rule that I had put in place uh, every single time that I, that I drank. Can you think of a specific rule that you put in place and then later break, later broke? Sure, of course, of course. Um, there was, you know, kind of a cardinal rule, which was uh, no drinking before a big shoot day and that one was kind of first to go. Because it was like, well, how else do I expect to relax before I go shoot? And then it was uh, no drinking alone in a hotel room. Uh, that one didn't really last long either because I travel so much. Uh, and then no day drinking on the weekends. Uh, that one was kind of the last one to go. Um, usually on the weekends, I'm with my son. And I try not to drink during the day. But kind of where I, near the end where I stopped drinking, that, that was a rule that was getting pretty pretty bent out of shape by that point. Gotcha. So rules are being broken. Anxiety's ramping up, still justifying it. It's still normalized. Yet the voice that's saying, okay, we might need to take a further look at this drinking is ramping up as well. I love it. Get us up to speed. 
Yeah. So, I mean, that kind of brings us up to about six months ago when uh, the big thing that started to rear its ugly head was uh, binge drinking. And I know that binge drinking is kind of defined as having, you know, more than two to four drinks in a single setting, single sitting. And, you know, two to four drinks at that point for me was a warm up. It was (laughs) kind of like (laughs) for all listeners, another virtual exercise. All hands went up. Yeah, exactly. And even though like I did have kind of you kind of have that running tally in your head, it's like, okay, well, I've had two drinks with dinner and I've had two drinks after dinner. And now if I have another two drinks, you're counting in your head how many drinks you've had. Even though I was doing that, a lot of the nights I was just losing track. And it was that's around the time that I was kind of like, okay, something something needs to kind of shift here again for the good as opposed to the bad. And in around that time, uh, I'm a huge uh, sports fan. And uh, and the Toronto Raptors were on their incredible NBA finals run at the time. And uh, I was going it was a great year. Uh, I was going to a lot of games. I fortunately have half a block of season tickets. So I was going to a lot of the playoff games. And every time we would go to those games, there would be drinking involved. And uh, every time the team would win, there would be a party to go to. And, And so even that was really starting to ramp everything up. And it really became like a, like sort of like a perpetual motion thing, uh, like a flywheel. You know, once it was started, it just it, it was really hard to kind of pull back on the momentum. The other thing that happens, I went away to a industry event, and while we were while I was away, that one was really apparent that I just didn't really have control over it anymore. You know, I often give the analogy of it's almost like imagine you have a wheelbarrow that's full like a, a full load of wheelbarrow and you're walking downhill and you know that you, as long as you take little baby steps, you can get down that hill. But when you start taking those baby steps, you gain more and more momentum and pretty soon that wheelbarrow is just going to pull you down that hill. Yeah. Or so, tip and over that, and spill all or the Or tip contents. over and spill yeah. everything. I love yeah, that exactly. analogy. So that's about the time that, that I, I kind of decided. And it was uh, actually the night that the Toronto Raptors won the game six. I was at home and they won. I was super happy. I was super jazzed. You know, it's everything started to kind of come together in the fourth quarter. And I was like, oh, my God, they're actually going to do this. Like they're going to win the championship. And I should have been really excited about celebrating, really excited about, you know, going out and like joining the party in the streets and, you know, really being a part of this moment. And I just remember I was at home and my wife and I were watching the game and, uh, and I walked over to our, our little bar area and I picked up a bottle of scotch and was about to pop the lid and pour myself a good healthy three fingers. And I was holding the bottle in my hand and it, and it felt so heavy. And I felt so exhausted that, you know, I just said, I, I can't I can't do this anymore. And I, you know, I just I put the bottle back down and and that was it. And that was essentially like the my first day of sobriety. Wow. Okay. So the Toronto Raptors, did they win this series against the Warriors or just that game? No, they won the whole thing, man. On game six. Wow. Okay. <laughs> On game six. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Okay. So you're about to have a celebration party with one, just you and a bottle, I guess two. Um, and you had a moment of clarity while pouring it. The, the glass just didn't feel right. It didn't feel heavy. Gut intuition. That that voice that was saying, we need to keep this in check. That's getting louder and louder and louder. Finally um, got your ear and you put it down. Wow. Nice, nice job. And, and how did it feel after that? It, it felt like, you know, it, you know, to, to be somewhat cheesy about it, it was, you know, every new beginning comes from some other beginnings end, you know, where it's like, if this is the beginning of something, it's the ending of something else. 
Yeah, something has to die before space is created for a new life, a new situation, new behaviors, thoughts, actions to emerge. Yeah, and the the big thing for me was, you know, getting up the next day because I had done this countless times throughout the the months of the playoffs, where waking up the game the day after a game slightly hungover or massively hungover, and then you know having to be up at six thirty to make my son breakfast and get him out the door and off to school. You know, and to wake up the day after they had won the championship and not be in that condition was like, oh, right. This is this is a new way to do things. This is this is the right way to do things. So had you been drinking during game six or that day? No, not at all. Okay, not at all. Okay, so you went over to pour yourself a drink. Man, I've heard a lot of stories, but rarely do I hear one when your team wins the the championship against the Warriors, and it's not like, all right, after this drink, I'll get sober. That's usually the narrative that I hear. Nice job. That's incredible. So how did you do it the next day, the next week? What was it like living life without alcohol for those first first couple days, first weeks? As I kind of said before, I, I, I had recognized pretty early on that it was habitual. It was centered around things that I would do in my daily, weekly, my work routines. So stopping was going to have to be about creating new habits. And I started kind of digging into different resources. Recovery Elevator came up, um, Recovery Happy Hour came up, Under the Skin with Russell Brand came up. You know, it was all, and every time that I would listen to these podcasts, I would find myself nodding in agreement to the stories. And then someone would drop a nugget of knowledge of like, oh, you should check out this book. Check out Dry by Augustine Burroughs. Boom, order the book. You know, check out Recovery by Russell Brandt. Boom, order that book. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of dug in and uh, really started to do the work early and fast. And the other thing that was kind of interesting was that I was alone here in Toronto um, with, just, with my son because my wife was working on a project out of town. So my first sort of 30 days of sobriety was done in pretty much complete, um, like, solitude. You know, I just, uh, changing the habits, you know, instead of having the evening two, three drinks, it was listen to a podcast, read two, three chapters. And then the other thing that I started doing really early on, which was part of a a tip from uh, Recovery Happy Hour, was to really listen to the body and um, what's going on inside of you, because there are two things that are going to happen. One is that you are physically pulling yourself away from something that you've been dependent on for a long time, whether you realize it or not, even if it's just recognizing the just sugar intake from wine or beer or liquor, you know, that's something that you cut out of your diet and your body is going to go through cravings and it might just be sugar. So, you know, if you want to, if you find yourself in the evenings having sugar cravings, eat some M&Ms. Go for it, man. Like, you know, it's better than going the other way and cracking open a beer or cracking open a bottle of wine. You know, just have a couple M&Ms and satisfy that craving. Wendell, I love how you mentioned cravings. And we often misidentify what a craving is. We usually be saying, oh, it's alcohol and craving alcohol. It could be sugar. And it also could be Wendell craving the old self. It could be the body saying, hey, these new habits that we're trying to build, these two or three podcast episodes a night instead of you know the tall ones or the drinks, we don't know about this. And the body can actually create chemicals 
to crave the old self. And simply listening to the body and recognizing what that is can allow us to take one step away from those chemicals and just to let them show up and let them go. I'm not saying it's, it's, it's pleasant. Cravings can be extremely uncomfortable. And I've had cravings these past, these past 14 months. My life has completely changed. And I've recognized it for what it is. They're cravings for the old self. And an old part of us has to die. And this happens This happens in infinite amount of times throughout life. So we have bigger chapters that end, sometimes small chapters that end. But as we grow and evolve, the body can crave the old self. And it's important to recognize what's going on. And also, it's important not to label these cravings because I might be incorrectly labeling my cravings as well. Now, Wendell... You mentioned habits. How long did it take for these habits to to take hold? Um, and guys, addiction is confusing. Um, the source, etc., what it is, but a lot of this can be sourced to habits. And so, recreating the new those new habits, building those new neurological networks, those circuits, is imperative. Tell us about how long it took about for those habits to take hold. Yeah, I mean, most most expert will will kind of point to uh, 21 days as a way to uh, form a new habit, something that you want to do, whether it's you know for diet or exercise, or whatever they say. You know, if if you want to force yourself awake at 6:30 in the morning so you get a good start on the day, do it 21 days in a row, and your body will start to do it automatically. I think for me, because I was so intense with wanting these new habits, I. I would say they kind of really took hold around like the 14 day mark, about two weeks in. And there was motivation behind that. When I found something that I really enjoyed, I really grabbed onto it. And it could be something as simple as, you know, going for a, a walk in the morning with the dog and getting out to a park and feeling the morning sun and, you know, getting that sort of sense of like, okay, new day, made it through yesterday, today's a new day. If I enjoyed that, I grabbed onto that and I tried to everything in my power to make that happen every single day. And, and then on the other side of it, you know, it was also about putting good things in place whenever anxiety started to build up, whenever I found myself kind of getting closer and closer to stepping back into that hamster wheel, I would, you know, take 20, take 30, go sit, meditate, you know, whether it was through guided meditation or I just on my own meditation, go for a walk, listen to a podcast again, you know, just to kind of recenter and recalibrate to, to remember what it was that I was doing in the first place. Wendell, you mentioned your first 30 days, you were somewhat flying solo with this. Where was your wife? Was she on board or was she, did you let her know what's going on? Did you burn some ships? No, she, uh, she knew what was going on. She was away. And she was coming back. She was back and forth. She was working on a project out of town. She's also in the in the film industry. And so she would come back and I would say, hey, you know, and she's like, oh, do you want to have a glass of wine? And I was like, no, you know what? I, I'm, I'm good. I haven't I haven't drank in, you know, about five days. And I want to keep that going. Probably by about, you know, day 10 or 12, she was like, what's going on? You know, are you uh, is this like a new thing? Are you yeah, done? done? Course, and I'm yeah. like, ah. I said, yeah, I think I think I might be done done. You know, I think that. She's obviously she she kind of she knew what was going on. Uh, she may not have known to the full extent of what was going on because I travel so much and I was you know we're not necessarily in the same space all the time. But she usually saw the reciprocal effects of it when I came home and, and you know came came home from a trip. So once I kind of said to her like yeah I think I might be done done. She's like great awesome well you let me know what you need you know if you need me to 
you know, clear the alcohol bottles out of the house. If you need me to, you know, dial back my own, you know, we can figure something out. And I was like, well, I'll let you know when, when I do. But, you know, for the most part, it's been, it's been a good journey. And it's been like, it's great to know that she has my back, you know, and she's always had my back. So she's one of my, uh, she's one of my biggest champions. Listeners, it is imperative we bring our spouses, significant others, people that are closest to us in our lives on board with this journey as we depart from alcohol. And the response from your wife doesn't surprise me. And 99% of the time, it's going to be met with unconditional love and support. Now, have you told your film crew or, or others in your industry, <laughs> hey, Wendell, great shoot today, shoot tomorrow. <laughs> what's, the, what's the response there? Yeah, that one's a little more tricky, I'll be honest with you, uh, because there is an expectation sometimes, you know, and uh, thankfully, the shoots that I have been going on, I've been working with uh, some new crew members, just because that's the way it happens sometimes, and it's always an interesting moment when, you know, we finish the shoot day, hey, we're going to go get some food, let's go to the, I mean, usually end up at a resto bar or some gastro pub or something like that, and, you know, everyone at the table orders a round of drinks, and gets to me and I say, oh, I'll just have like a, a, you know, just a soda and lime or, or something, or do you have any near beer or do you have any NA beer? And, you know, usually like a couple, couple eyebrows raised and like, Oh, what's going on? And, you know, for the most part, sometimes depending on who's in the crowd, I go, I go, well, you know, I got a big day tomorrow or t- tomorrow's another big day. We gotta, I gotta just keep my head clear. And now I've more or least recently just turned over to tell people that like, look, I don't drink anymore. And you mentioned interesting moments. Um, I had plenty of those interesting moments when I told people in group settings that I don't drink. And then I realized I was the one who was making those interesting moments. <laughs> and no one really <laughs> cared that I drank or not. And I love it. No. Um, listeners, you couldn't see, but we were seeing each other face to face. And when he finally said, you know, I just tell him I don't drink. I raised my fist in the air. It's like, yes, because that's, that's the simplest, easiest, most effective way. It's honest. It's authentic. And people get the point right away. Just say, you know what? I don't drink. That's it. And one, uh, one more question before we get to mm. um, this, this incredible project you're working on is earlier you said, I was using alcohol instead of getting to the root cause. It was about eight minutes, eight, eight and a half minutes into yeah. your interview. Um, I almost jumped at it right there, but what do you think is the root cause of what, what were you using alcohol to cover up? Well, I think, you know, as I kind of mentioned, a lot of it was anxiety based. You know, I, uh, I have a lot of anxieties around work, a lot of anxieties around social situations. And the thing that you kind of on the other side of it, and in retrospect only, after you stop drinking, you realize that your daily consumption had more or less just numbed my feelings altogether. It was ultimately, it's, it's the ultimate downside of my own uh, drinking. You know, I was self-medicating for my anxiety, but at the cost of that, I was dulling every other emotion that came along with it. And now in retrospect, when I look back, I, now I feel present. I feel in the moment. I, I don't feel as if things are dulled down. You know, I've heard people use the phrase, things became colorful. Everything was in technicolor. Um, and I can definitely relate to that. You know, I, I, I'm fortunate enough that in my job, I get to travel to some amazing places in the world. And now in sobriety, I find myself in those places looking around and going, this is, this is truly beautiful. Wow. And how's the anxiety been without the alcohol? Uh, it's been good. You know, I think, again, like, finding new ways to deal with it, whether it's through um, daily meditations or whether it's through recentering, recalibrating. 
I also recognize that for myself, uh, sleep is such an important thing. When I haven't been sleeping well, when I'm restless or tired, I my willpower is very low, you know, and I find myself very easily slipping into old anxiety habits. Whereas getting those, you know, seven, eight hours a night, really crucial. And it's one of those things that I think if if you are having, if you are in early recovery, you realize really quickly your body needs sleep and that's how it's going to repair itself and that's how it's going to get back on track. Wendell, when I quit drinking, 90% of my anxiety went away and the remaining 10% was there to tell me something. And I was able to tune into the body, use the mind to locate where the anxiety was, was housed. And it was always telling me something. And that's, that's what Rumi, the, uh, ancient Sufi poet would tell. Uh, I think it's one of his quotes is the, all these feelings are messengers. And now when I get anxiety, I sit with it and I look at it that it's a messenger. It's telling me something. Sure. It's uncomfortable at times, but that's there to serve me in my direction. Yeah. And on that tip too, I mean, in terms of the messaging and, and messages that I was receiving, you know, at the time I was working on, um, this new project, uh, sober house, a sign of change in cremation. And I was talking with these kids who are indigenous youth from Northern Saskatchewan and they believe that they are the seventh generation. They are carrying the message of sobriety back to their communities. So, you know, I had all these messages coming at me from all over the place, whether it was internal in my own mind and external sitting down and watching footage of these kids who are, you know, vying for change and vying for sobriety in their communities. And so this project and listeners, there will be a link to this YouTube video in the show notes for episode 246. Thank you so much, Carrie Mack, for doing the show notes. So you can go to uh, in iTunes, you can find a link to this, this project. Um, so this showed up on your plate when you were also exploring what a life would be like without alcohol. Am I hearing that at the same time? Yeah, well, it, it kind of showed up in and around the time that I was maybe, you know, having some internal conflict with it. So having to go out to uh, film these kids while also having you know, this sort of internal dialogue in your brain about maybe it's time to dial back on drinking, maybe it's time to quit drinking. And then sitting down and hearing these kids' stories about how much alcohol has impacted their life was kind of like, imagine like a nail is just sticking this far out, like sticking about an inch out of the wood. And that was the hammer, you know, bang, the nail just got pushed in. It's like, okay, now it's time to stop. Wow. You know, so like, these guys, they're, they're bringing the message back to their communities and also to the film crew. Did you, did you chat with any, any of the kids in the film about this? Um, about your journey? Well, we've, uh, not so much. Like, uh, I think when we were filming, it was very imperative for me to be very sensitive to, to what these kids have been put through, sure. uh, and what these kids have gone through experiential wise. So we kind of had a rule on the crew. And I kind of made it very clear with the crew. just like, look, like we're going to go in here. I just have one rule. We can't drink while we're filming. You know, we can't, even when we go out at night, even though we've called rap, even if we're at a bar, we can't drink because the last thing I want is to try to tap into these kids and to have an interview with these kids when I have a crew that smells of alcohol from the night before, because that might be a negative trigger for these kids to close up. Absolutely. In order to do this project full justice, I, I, I love that really implemented. I mean, it's a powerful f film and I highly encourage you guys to go to the show notes, open up the link and watch it. What are some takeaways that you learned while doing this project? Well, to kind of sum it up, you know, it's, it is a story about indigenous youth who are uh, speaking out against the normalization of overconsumption in their community. And they are using a, a, 
a sort of a tool put forward by uh, Harold R. Johnson, who's an author, in which people kind of put signs in their windows to declare that their house is a sober house. And the idea is to solidify the community's stance on sobriety from or from the inside out. And, you know, for me, it was it was really interesting to hear these kids' stories and to hear what they had gone through and their own personal experiences with alcohol and to know that, you know, they are kind of the tip of the iceberg in terms of those experiences in northern communities. So these kids are really looking to make a lot of change. And at the end of the day, the story is about hope and courage and change, you know, the hope for a better day, the courage that these kids had to step forward and the change that they're trying to implement. So they would put a signal on the house signifying that it's a sober household, which is incredible. And listeners, I feel there is a collective movement going on across the globe. Now, addiction is rising, but we're seeing snippets. We're seeing, in fact, uh, several episodes ago, I talked about for three consecutive years, Americans are drinking less. Millennials might be the first generation to just depart from this. And many of them are not drinking altogether. Now, addiction is on the rise, but I think in the next 5, 10, 15 years, we may hit a tipping point where we, we, hit, we hit the high water mark. And projects like this are incredible. So nice job. And, and yeah, I love the rule you implemented with it. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing this with us. Um, and, and so how can they find out about you and your website and more of your work with this project? Uh, sure. For Sober House, you can go to uh, www.soberhouse.ca because we're in Canada. And you can also follow the film on Instagram and Twitter at Sober House Film is the handle there. Uh, and people can find me at the Wendell G on uh, Instagram. Gotcha. And before we hit the rapid fire, Wendell, just a couple more questions yeah. for you. In the email you sent me, you talked about with, with, with without alcohol in your life, um, how have the mood swings been in the depressive states? Yeah, I think it's really about being present. And uh, I've heard a number of people express this inside of the fact that, you know, once once the kind of fog cleared and emotions really start to wash in and you find yourself being incredibly present in every moment and moments mean more. And one of the things that struck me right away was, you know, these mornings with my son were took on a whole new meaning. You know, it was so much more of a, of a, the fact that like I was just there. I was just really, really present and uh, really dialed in emotionally. I'm writing down a value bomb. You just dropped there, Wendell. And that's moments mean more. And I had a realization when I ditched the alcohol that there are no special moments because they are all special moments, every single one of them. And with presence, it's easier to see that. And Wendell, we've reached the rapid fire round. Are you ready to yeah. do this? I am ready. All right. What's a light bulb moment you've had on this journey? Uh, yeah, I mentioned earlier, I think, you know, moments with my son. They're way better when you're not inside of that hamster wheel of anxiety loop, and they're way better without a hangover. You know, you can really enjoy the moments, uh, especially in the mornings. What's a memorable moment a life without alcohol has provided you? Uh, I would say on this on one of these last recent trips, I was fortunate enough to travel up into the Yukon to do some filming. And I just remember coming out of the tent in the morning after sleeping outside and, you know, getting ready for the film day. And, you know, the mist was rising off of the lake and the sun streaming through the clouds and this mountain is revealing itself. And I'm just standing there and going, man, what a what a day to be alive. Like, this is great. 
What's your favorite alcohol-free drink? Uh, does ice cream count? Definitely. If you melt that, you can drink it for sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, my ice cream intake is definitely dialed up since stopping drinking, but, um, I'm, you know, I'm, I am a bit of a foodie. I've yet to find a really good NA wine. So if there's anyone out there who kind of has a line on some hit me up, man. Cause being a foodie, you know, it's, uh, I still drink a lot of NA beer, mostly the Budweiser prohibition. Cause it's a zero, zero Heineken zero, zero. Those are some of my go-tos outside of that. If I'm going to have sort of a refreshing drink, it might be some uh, soda water mixed with uh, a little splash of uh, ginger beer. Yeah. Good on Heineken and Budweiser for doing the zero, zero NA beers. And about five years ago, you had a couple options. You had like a, you had like a, I'm trying to think of, there was, there was like, help me out here. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there was only like two or three NA options and now there's like craft beer, 0.0 non-alcoholic beer options. It's cool to see this trend emerging. Um, next question. What are some of your favorite resources? I think one of the cool things that kind of happened for me was that I really dialed back into my love of reading. So, you know, I, I mentioned um, Dry by Augustine Burroughs. I mentioned Recovery by Russell Brand. And, you know, reading those books are, are always a great new thing to do in the evening as opposed to your old habit, which was, you know, having two or three drinks before bed. And then the outside of that, the Recovery Elevator podcast, I binged that pretty hard in the first 30 days. Uh, same thing with uh, Recovery Happy Hour. You know, I think what you and Trish are doing uh, is is incredible. You guys are doing great work. And, you know, whether or not you realize it, I'm sure it's helping millions of people. Uh, thanks for listening, Wendell. I appreciate it. What's on your bucket list in an alcohol-free life? Yeah, I'm trying to keep that simple. My big thing is to really have great experiences with, with my family, you know, because realizing that for a couple of years, I was kind of dialed out and kind of numbed out. Uh, it's not necessarily a making up for lost time kind of thing. But now that I do have this sort of presence of mind, it's kind of like, okay, let's go make some memories. And what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners, Wendell? Yeah, I think there's maybe two. Um, the first one is, uh, to listen to your body. And the second one is listen to your body because it's going to tell you everything that you need to know in your early days of recovery. And listeners, I I recommend going back to episode 214 when I interviewed Dr. Sue Mortar, who is a guru on this stuff, the author of the energy codes. And the reason why listening to your body is so important is because the body doesn't lie. The mind, the ego, the protective personality will oftentimes incorrectly label um, everything in your environment, but the body never lies. And before we depart, Wendell, give listeners your own customized, you might need to ditch the booze if line. Sure. You might need to ditch the booze if you know where every liquor store in every major airport is in your country. I love it. Great job, Wendell. Thank you so much for joining us. Again, guys, the uh, the documentary is called Sober House, A Sign of Change in Cree Nation. Check out the show notes. Find the link. Watch it. Nice job, Wendell. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Paul. Really appreciate it. So the other day I was listening to an audio book. It was a crash course on Buddhism. I've been interested in that lately. And there was this wise tale about six blind men trying to describe what an elephant was. So they took the blind man to the elephant and they gave one blind man the tail. And the blind man goes, oh, this is clearly a rope. Another one, 
they, they show the blind man the side of the elephant. And he's like, hey, dude, obviously a wall. Another one, they gave him a trunk. And he's like, whoa, this is a big snake. Another blind man, they said, hey, here's the leg. And he goes, clearly a massive tree trunk. And for the other blind man, they gave him the elephant's ear. He's like, dude, this is pizza dough. I love pizza. Hopefully there's pepperoni and pineapple on this in about 15 minutes. They gave the last blind man the tusk. And he goes, you know what? I have no idea what this is, but I can tell you, if you take this tusk and grind it up into a powder and sell it for medicinal purposes, it will have absolutely no effect. So please stop shooting elephants just for whatever the hell this is. Sorry, I had to go there. So the point of this wise tale is that all six of these people, well, five, the guy with the tusk has no idea what it is, but they all think they 100% definitively know what they're holding. One's like, I got a rope. The other says a wall, a snake, a tree, a pizza dough, soon to be pepperoni, pineapple, a tusk, which stop poaching elephants. The tusks have no medicinal purpose at all, but they're all incorrect labels. So stop labeling shit. Your emotions, experiences, your day, all of it. What you think somebody thinks about you probably isn't right. So what do we do? Well, let's just roll with it. Stop interjecting with the mind and just let things be. What's that quote I sometimes say? Da, 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 da. Stop thinking, start being. Recovery elevator. We took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. I love you guys. Wait for it, wait for it, wait for it. We can do this.